0: It's a joy for me to be with you uh, on, on this occasion. Um, by this time last year, I had no idea that in the providence of God, uh, this door would open for me to uh, come to Bethany Bible Church and uh, preach for you. Um, when the invitation uh, came in, uh, I wrestled with it quite a bit because I knew that I owed our brother Lance Quinn. Um, a, a favor, he had visited my corner of the world in the middle of nowhere to preach for us uh, a good uh, 14 years ago, and uh, I had never gotten the opportunity to come and uh, minister uh, in his own context. And so, uh, in due season, um, the the Lord was was gracious to prevail upon a rather tight schedule and uh, enable me to be here. So I do bring you greetings from uh, not only the Kabwata Baptist Church uh, that I have had the privilege to pastor, but also a lot of other brethren in Zambia uh, to whom the name Lance Queen means a lot because of the ministry that he undertook when he was with us. As has already been said, I will be dealing with uh, the subject of the glorious kingdom of God beginning this evening all the way to Wednesday. And so, as I was wrestling with what it is that I should deal with in this session by way of uh, introduction, it just uh, dawned on me that... I should deal with the the topic of entering or inheriting uh, the kingdom of God. Because what we'll be dealing with in the evenings beginning tonight is really going to be the subject of um, the, the life that we are expected to live with respect to God and also with respect to one another in God's kingdom. So it's vital that we don't take for granted whether we are in that kingdom or not. And that's really what I want to handle uh, this morning. And in order to do so, let me draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And um, I'll be dealing with verse 9 to verse 11. But allow me to begin reading from the beginning of this chapter. So First Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, we will be looking um, at uh, verse 1 onwards, if you are there. I commence reading. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law? before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And then our text. Oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Brethren, as I've already hinted, we are looking at the subject of the kingdom of God, the glorious kingdom of God. And as we shall see this evening, uh, a kingdom is basically um, a domain in which a king exercises his rule. So you can easily break that word into a kingdom, a king exercising his rule over a major realm. It's, it's the place where his will is obeyed, and if you do not obey his will, well, you pay for it, uh, because his will is supreme. Now, when we think in terms of the spiritual realm, we tend to think in terms of two major kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, which no doubt is the supreme one. And even when we start speaking in terms of the kingdom of the evil one, it does not mean that God is biting his nails, wondering what might happen to him in the midst of that enmity. However, we still think in terms of two kingdoms. We think in terms of the realm where God's will is obeyed, readily obeyed, and then we also think in terms of the realm where God's will is opposed, it is rebelled against, not only by him who rules it, but by all the subjects that are within. The sad reality is that all of us are born in that realm that is in rebellion against God. And consequently, the most important change that must ever happen to all of us before we die is that we must make that transition from the first kingdom, under enslavement, to Satan, to the world, and indeed to our own flesh, and moving over into the realm where we are ready, willing, loving subjects of the living God. And that's what I'm really dealing with uh, this morning. It's the question, have you made that transition yet? Because remember, it is the most important. Anyone that has not made that transition must pay for it dearly, not only in time, but more so in eternity. Because God has made it plain that there there is a place where he will send all who are on the wrong side of his role. It is the place called hell. It is the place ultimately referred to as the lake of fire in which the worm does not die. In other words, you continue to exist, but you are in torment in that fire. Surely, if you love yourself, in any normal way, in any normal, de- normal degree, you will want to seek after your own joy and your own comfort. And that's only when you deal with this transition, moving from this one kingdom into the next. And it is this movement from one kingdom to the other that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this passage of Scripture before us. Whereas in the evening, I'll be dealing with Romans chapter 14, this particular one is in 1 Corinthians. And I've deliberately come here primarily because the Apostle Paul was dealing with a very religious situation, and not only religious in terms of people worshiping some kind of deity but religious in terms of people being within the christian church and yet at this point the apostle paul is very concerned about the matters that he's been hearing from this church that he was involved in establishing so the fault is not with the gospel message that was preached there. The fault is not even with those who labored initially to plant this church. Rather, the fault is more to do with the the context in which individuals are living, and that is in this case in Corinth, and individuals still exhibiting something of the deeply ingrained sinful habits that were there within their background and within their community. So for instance, uh, there was the, the divisions that we've just read about earlier in chapter one, where the divisions were all related to the various leaders that had labored within the context of the Church in Corinth, where did that come from? It, it was coming from uh, the, the, the Greek and Roman background where uh, they largely were, were followers of, of great orators, and these were the, the great philosophers that they uh, looked up to as those who would usher in um, an utopia if only the people would follow something of their creed, something of their philosophy. And so that kind of background uh, found its way right into the church so that everybody was basically saying, I belong to this great orator, and I belong to this great leader, and I belong to this great philosopher. And of course, the Apostle Paul is is heartbroken by what he's seeing there or what he's hearing from there because the Christian church is about Christ. That's so all. It's just Christ. And so he asked those questions we saw earlier. He also deals with uh, issues of, of sexual immorality. And as we saw a little earlier on, he also deals with lawsuits among believers. And the rest of the book... Brings out a lot more of of the kind of news that that Paul already had at the back of his mind as he was writing this epistle. And he the, the main point he wanted to draw out was this: that where there is genuine Christianity, where the gospel has had its rightful impact, or to borrow the picture that we are dealing with here, where an individual has moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's marvelous light, there is a moral transformation because of the nature of God and the very nature of his salvation. And that to compromise on that, To throw all that away is not changing spiritual reality at all. Rather, it is to deceive ourselves. And in the end, we are the ones who will pay for it. Let's quickly look at the way in which the Apostle Paul deals with that, especially in this text, soon after dealing with the issue of lawsuits among believers. What is it that Paul was drawing the attention of the Corinthians to, and what is it, therefore, that is drawing our attention to 2,000 years later? Well, first of all, it is this, that we must face the fact of our greatest challenge as human beings. And it is this, that no sinner, will ever enter the kingdom of God. That's the first. And it's a real challenge for us as human beings. Look at the way he puts it in verse 9. Oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if if there's any truth that that finally causes individuals to to wake up despite having a a religious church-going background, it is this. When they suddenly realize that, in fact, the God who is there is a God who hates sin with absolute hatred. He is a holy God. He cannot dwell with sin. It's, it's absolutely impossible. You might as well manage to have darkness and light in the same room. You might as well manage to mix water and oil. Then manage to make God dwell In his kingdom, surrounded by men and women reeking with sin. It's absolutely impossible. Don't you know, the Apostle Paul asks, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's not only because God is holy it is also because God is just. In other words, he doesn't just dwell in a context of holiness, but he must punish sin. It's his very nature. It is part of the very throne on which he dwells. God would not be God if he did not punish sin. Because of that, therefore, it is absolutely unthinkable that sinners would enter into his heaven and dwell with him there. Now, those of us who are brought up in a church context, this is a thought that that should really smoke out any form of false Christianity. Because growing up in church, we we, we tend to be like Pharisees in the days of Jesus. We tend to be like whitewashed tombs or graves. Looking very beautiful on the outside. But actually, we are downright hypocrites. We are still individuals who are surrounded by sin, except it's hidden away from the people who should not know that this is the life that we are actually living. And that's the kind of situation that the Apostle Paul was dealing with here. He was dealing with people who are already in the church and he is challenging them to face this reality that a Christianity that allows you to still live in sin and still expect God to welcome you in the end, throw it away. It's a false kind of Christianity. It is dangerous to say the least. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Have you faced that challenge, the greatest of all human challenges, that there is no eternity with joy unless you answer the question of the sin problem in your life. Have you faced it yet? Because without facing it, you will not seek a savior. You will remain content with your skin deep religion until it is too late. Let me ask again, have you faced that reality? Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't simply end with our greatest challenge. He also challenges us about the fact that we must not allow any vague notions of sin to deceive us about our great enslavement. In fact, our grave enslavement. In this text, he specifically mentions sins by name. Look at the way he puts it halfway through verse 9. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters no adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, no thieves, no the greedy, no drunkards, no revilers, no swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The point he's making there is something that we can well understand. Back home in Zambia, uh, people rarely use the phrase "I am sick they don't They, they never ever say that. The way they normally s- speak about it they say i 'm not feeling too well that 's the way they speak i 'm not feeling too well now at my age i, I can 't remember the last time I felt too well <laughs> if you understand what I mean. So, so when people are saying, I don't feeling too well, I often think to myself, well, you know, we're in the same body. The same body. <laughs> but obviously what they mean in their case is that I'm really sick. I need to see a doctor. And there's a way in which we can be very hazy about sin we can easily get away with the fact that, well, everybody's a sinner. So what's the big bother here? And in that attitude, fail to look our specific sin in the face. So that we can say, this is My sin. This is is the sin I am struggling with. This is the sin which, if it is not defeated, I will go to hell. Now, often disease is like that. It's not enough to simply say, well, you know, there are diseases everywhere. But often, when you show up before a doctor, Either you already know the specific disease you are suffering from or you want the doctor to help you arrive at what it is that you are suffering from so that you can have a cure if a cure is even possible. We, We want to look our sin in the face as we look at our disease in the face and consequently deal with it. Look for um, um, a cure for it. Well, the Apostle Paul deliberately picked out a number of sins. It was not meant to be a comprehensive list. But no doubt, these were the sins that were particularly evident in the church in Corinth. We know, for instance, the issue of sexual immorality was, was clearly there, the, the issue of adultery um, and so on. The, the issue of uh, uh, greed was clearly there. The issue of swindling was clearly there. These, these are some of the sins that have already been mentioned in the earlier chapters, as you go into the latter chapters, you come across uh, the scene of drunkenness, for instance, uh, around the, the, um, the love feast and uh, the breaking of bread. So he, he's simply pulling out some sins that he knew were, would have been present among the, the Corinthians, as the the way, including those who are now in the context of the church. If we are going to seek a solution with respect to our situation, we need to face the fact that this is the peculiar sin that's bringing me down. And consequently, I need a savior. I need a savior. Paul's concern ought to also be our concern as well. That a religious profession is possible while you continue to be enslaved to your sin welcomed into the context of the church, baptized, participating in all kinds of church activities, when in actual fact, you are still being eaten away on the inside by the termites of sin. Until on God's judgment day, the entire superstructure of your life comes crumbling down, only to realize that the inside had been eaten away by sin. The tragedy of the day in which we live is the tendency to to want to rationalize sin and somehow try and explain it away. So, if my sin is primarily a sin of the heart, then that's all right, we say. The bad people are those who are outwardly practicing their sin. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said, if you are angry with your brother, you deserve to go to hell. If you are lusting with your eyes, as good as committing adultery. In other words, you cannot explain sin away simply because it's not something that you are actively doing on the outside. We tend to belittle sin as well. In other words, the fact that you have not put a bullet through your chief enemy in the church makes you feel quite righteous, (laughs) when in actual fact, you thoroughly murder that person's reputation over dinner as often as possible. So, again, instead of facing the fact that sin has captivated my heart and I need to be liberated, we look at the serial killers and say, those are the ones who will go to hell. How can you murder so many people? In actual fact, we are doing the same in our own lives. Another way in which we do it is often to to justify our sins by the fact that it's, it's a reaction. Someone has offended me. So surely, what do you expect? Someone really tempted me and all I did was to finally fall. Like Adam, it is this woman you put here with me. She gave me to it. If you had never brought this woman into my life, I would be happy, (laughs) even up to now. (sighs) That doesn't help. Because the God we deal with is an all-seeing God. He knows all the details. And he knows that the fountain of our sin is actually our own sinful hearts. They are diseased. And unless those hearts are cured, even if he brought us into a perfect heaven, we would end up sinning even there. It is said uh, that one time Spurgeon was preaching, and uh, he he mentioned the fact that if you are a sinner, even if you get into heaven, you'll still be sinning. And one of the issues he mentioned was that if you're a thief, then you find yourself in heaven. You'll be pickpocketing the pockets of angels. <laughs> well, someone corrected him afterwards and said, "Angels don't have pockets." So, next time he showed up, he took back his illustration and said, You will be stealing the feathers on angel wings. (laughs) The point he's making is that it's not the environment that's going to clean you up. If you are a sinner, you will sin anywhere. So, stop blaming the environment, it's the heart. And it's the heart that desperately needs to be changed. The point, therefore, is this. That if you are still in sin, then even though you may be in the church, you are not in God's kingdom yet. If you are still living in sin, You should not imagine yourself coming in that way. You must deal with the issue of your own sinful heart. You say, how? Well, that's where the Apostle Paul ends in this uh, passage that we are looking at. He's basically saying, however enslaved you are, you can enter God's kingdom through his glorious salvation. His glorious salvation. He puts it this way. And in referring to it, he speaks about what God has actually already done. There's evidence in the church in Corinth. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, The Apostle Paul is, is basically referring to the impact of the gospel. That when you came into Corinth, He preached the gospel. And when he preached the gospel, it transformed lives, listen to this, by the power of the Spirit of God. Earlier in chapter 2, he had put it this way. And when I came to you brothers, verse 1, and I, when I came to you brothers, Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And he will repeat that, but it's again referring to this culture of great orators. Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. The gospel. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. Again, all that is saying that I was the exact opposite of a great orator. Those whom you know have made a great impact in terms of a great following. In the Greek Roman world. But here is the way he spoke. Halfway through verse 4. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. But in the power of God. He's basically saying... As I preached this message of Christ and him crucified, Christ and him crucified, Christ and him crucified, God was at work. And as he worked, he transformed lives. And that's what he's speaking about in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. When he says, you were washed you were sanctified. That's referring, no doubt, to the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration, where the Spirit of God takes out of you your your sinful heart, your heart of stone, and puts into you a new heart, a heart that is malleable, A heart that responds, gladly responds to God and his word. A heart that wants to obey God, to serve God, to love God, to worship God. This new heart, this is the washing that was taking place under the sound of the gospel. But the Spirit of God did not end there. He also came to dwell in the hearts of believers. And as he comes to dwell in the hearts of believers, he then begins to do the work of sanctification, making believers more and more godly, more and more holy which is really what the word sanctify means. It means to make holy. So the washing is really a picture language. It's talking about a cleaning, leaving behind the dirt, and consequently being clean. And then the sanctifying is really the, the spiritual term. And the two coming together shows how those whom God saves, he morally transforms. One of the challenges I, I often have when I'm doing personal evangelism is that I, I visit individuals quite a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm working away at the, the various hiding places that they have because most Zambians tend to be religious. And I find that somewhere along the way, they often comment something like this. that you not know, I'm, I'm making progress. Keep coming. Keep coming. And I have to say to them, look, it's not a sort of slow process that we're talking about here. It's God saving you from sin. You are in a stream or a river drowning, you call on him and he lifts you out. So what I want to know from you is not whether there are steps of progress. It's are you still in the river or are you out of it? (laughs) Has he washed you? And if he has, can you speak in terms of This work of sanctification having begun in a very solid way. And I think all of us need to be reminded about this. That yes, there is such a thing as growth in grace. But it begins from a very solid foundation of an absolute change that has taken place in the soul. That at one time you were going in the direction of sin, and God turns you around, and you begin to go in the direction of greater and greater holiness. Has that turn around taken place in your soul? It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. And there isn't a single Christian on the planet where this hasn't happened. There are a lot of church members, yes, but not Christians. Because that's the way in which you go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. It is this washing and this sanctification. And then Paul also refers to the work of the Son of God. And that is our justification. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God not only cleaned your heart, gave you a new direction, but he also cleaned your record in heaven and put the righteousness of his own son there so that when God looks at your record, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not so much your own righteousness. But the thing I want you to notice as we hurry on to close is that these two must go together. And that was the burden of the Apostle Paul. That you have a church that is full of all kinds of scandals, infighting, sexual immorality, lawsuits, drunkenness. And and you mention it. And then they're still saying, well, we are justified. By faith alone, through grace alone. And Paul is saying, well, that's half the story. If God has changed your record in heaven, he must have also changed your heart on earth. The two go together and let nobody ever deceive you that God does half jobs. He doesn't. He does a full job. So then, We are all born in this other kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. The question is, have you made the transition yet? Has what the Apostle Paul says here happened to you? Can you speak in terms of the fact that yes, you were enslaved to sin, then you heard the glorious gospel. And having heard it, you cried to the Savior to save you. And by his Holy Spirit, he did a complete transformation and made you a new person so that now you are in the kingdom. And the way you know it, Is by a transformed life. A life that deliberately fights sin within, a life that deliberately wants God to be glorified in you. Has that transition happened? I don't want us to begin this evening on the assumption that you are in the kingdom and that we start talking about life in the kingdom, when in actual fact, you may still be on the outside. I want all of us to speak about life in the kingdom because we are in that kingdom. And so my plea is, if in your own soul you know this, That whereas on the outside people may still think all is well, on the inside you know that you are full of dead men's bones. Cry to Christ. Plead with him that he might save you. That he might wash away your sin. That he might bring you into God's glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that your salvation is real. That you really do save sinners uh, through the cross and through the work of your spirit. Thank you that many of us can testify of the years we spent in vanity and pride when we cared not that our Savior was crucified. When we knew not that it was really for us he died on Calvary. Thank you for the day when we learned about our sin. When we cried to the Savior and experienced that glorious moral transformation. Oh, how we pray that if there's any among us, even now, that cannot speak about meeting with this physician, being very conscious, painfully conscious of sin, and then going away, a new man, a new woman in Christ, that today might be that day of salvation. Oh Lord, hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.